and welcome back to another series of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I am joined as ever by my co-host, Bill. Hi, Patch. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. So uh, we are finally back. I know we've been gone for quite a while, but we've had uh, personal stuff and life stuff that we've had to get sorted out. But we are back fully. Well, actually, probably not fully because we're actually back with a bit of a mini series, a kind of season 3.5 or something, however we're going to number it. I don't know, I don't know how it will work. Um, but this mini series, we're kind of focusing on some a topic that we've danced around with a little bit. And it's not something we want to spend too much time on because it's very well-trodden territory. But we're going to do a four-episode miniseries on battles, which is, it's kind of a classic thing to cover. I mean, anyone who does history and anyone who reports on history tends to focus on battles probably more than they should. So yeah, we've kind so of true. resisted a bit. Um, but our take on it is we're going to try and find some really weird and wonderful battles. Wonderful is probably a wrong word for a battle, but I'm sticking with it. Weird and wonderful battles that will be unusual and interesting and something you haven't heard about before, because I think that's the more interesting part of history and the bits we like to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's the thing. So uh, you're not going to hear about the Battle of Hastings or the Battle of Agincourt or any other Mm. battle like that you would have learned about (laughs) at school. Yes, you can tell I I did a British history uh, uh, education there. (laughs) But uh, we're going to be looking um, for the odd battles, the ones that sort of sound weird and have some sort of weird twist to them. So hopefully Mm. you will never have heard them before and enjoy listening about them. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Just a bit of housekeeping. Obviously, uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Um, And if you don't know, we do actually have an Instagram account at Cloak and Dagger Podcast, uh, where you can find images and more information on all our podcasts. We do three episodes, three episodes, we do three posts, uh, we do a bit of a like a brief uh, what's upcoming or a sneak peek for the episode we're going to do. We have some really great imagery for the podcast once that comes out, which actually can really help ground you and get you more immersed into the stories we're telling. And then we also have a little bit of a bonus fact at the end of the week as well. So if you want to follow us on there, that is a really way to enhance your experience of the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, because of course the greatest drawback of a podcast is visuals. So uh, mm. when we're talking about the battles or about the cities from our last ep- our last series, or even if you go right back to the beginning and look at the assassination uh, series that we did, um, it it brings a whole other element that we can't provide to you over the sound waves. Um, mm. So yeah, get a come and see uh, what we've got up there at Cloak and Dagger Podcast on Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are, I mean, presumably because you're listening to us, you have found us via uh, whatever podcast means you have. But we are across multiple different podcast mediums. So uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, some other ones I can't remember. Yeah, Yeah. a smattering of them. Hopefully we, I mean, but the fact that you found us and you're listening to us means this probably is a bit redundant. But if there's other people, because also a great way to help out the show is just tell a friend and try and get more people because we love history. I'm sure if you love history, you know other people who like history. We basically became friends because we both like history and because university forced us to live next to each other, but also because we both love history. So I think if if you think there's anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, uh, send it to them. And I think that kind of covers everything. Before we do get started, however, uh, we have a bit of a trailer from a friend of the show. Uh, If you've been listening to us for a while, you probably have heard us have a joint podcast with our friend Patrick Little and his, fuck, what's it called? Little Little History History Podcast. 
A Little History Podcast, uh, which is a brilliant podcast where he covers some really great, uh, interesting mythological topics. And he's way funnier than we are. Um, and it's, it's just really fun to listen to. So before we get dive into that, to our episode today, we're going to have a little trailer from him. So I guess take it away, Patrick. That's really weird to say because he's got the same name as me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello, friends. My name is Patrick Little, host of A Little History Podcast. If you like to learn about history yeah, a little differently, then A Little History Podcast has you sorted. Nothing is off limits as we tackle some of the well-known and not-so-well-known stories from various mythologies and folklore from around the world. So drink them if you got them and join us for a bit of shit-talking and a lot of fun. My name is Patrick Little and this is A Little History Podcast. It's our history, but like you've never heard it before. So today's battle takes place, as I said in the intro, uh, in the late 18th century in Europe, in in Holland. So late 18th century, where we, my main uh, like basis, despite the fact that we've done many episodes around this time, I still kind of anchor my idea around when's Napoleon? Is he around? Is he young? Well, he is he is... old? Is he... <laughs> He is around. He is around. This is a uh, twenty. Is it twenty? Yeah, t- literally twenty years before the Battle of Waterloo, which is his downfall. Um, right. He's on the rise at the moment, but he's definitely not emperor yet. Okay. So okay. It's interesting that you mentioned France, though, because France will favor will play a massive part in today's episode because they okay. are one side of the belligerents in this battle. So, good word, belligerents. I'm going to use that Thank in my you. episodes as well. I'm trying to wonder whether that's the wrong wrong use of it. Whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm using I'm it like fairly, that. I'm fairly sure whenever I've looked at the Wikipedia article, it says belligerence on either side. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's where I got it from. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But no, yeah, so um, to give a little bit of context to the battle for today, um, I just want to tell you what's going on in the rest of Europe. So at this time, in 1789, you saw the beginning of the French Revolution and the turmoil that was caused uh, in France as a result. Now, for those of you who don't know your French Revolution history, um, just a quick synopsis. Basically, the people got sick of uh, the absolute monarchy of of France uh, under Louis XVI. Um, And uh, unlike, say, the British British monarchy at this time, um, the French monarchy was as powerful as it was back in the medieval times. Whereas in England, sorry, in Britain, it had lost a lot of its power by this point and Parliament had much more of a say. Mm. So it was kind of an outdated version of monarchy. And basically, uh, the French people rose up in rebellion, which went from a rebellion to a revolution. And it ended with um, them chopping off the head of Louis XVI. So uh, in 1792. So this, this story takes place three years after that in right. 1795 um straight after they chopped off the head of louis the 16th the war of the first coalition broke out between france which had now called itself a republic which was sort of like a, a dirty word in in, mm. in sort of monarchy mad <laughs> europe of yeah. the 18th century um and every other one of its neighbors who all were ruled by kings and queens wow so that's the reason why <laughs> So it's a very early war of, like, a disagreement over uh, the way to run a country. It's actually kind of similar. It's it's almost like, you know, many years later, or 100 or so years later, when the whole world was about to go to war over 
capitalism versus communism. It's just like a, it's a disagreement of ethos as opposed to a disagreement of land or, you know, who has the most gold or anything, you know, anything old and medieval. It's actually quite a modern, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, it's weird for me to rank <laughs> war reasons, but a war over like the way you believe a country should run is a, that's quite a new idea, I guess. It really is actually, yeah. Um, and a bit like the communist rise in Russia and China, it was sort of scared. It was like it was feared by everyone from those monarchies. So, because if you can imagine, if if one monarch has their head chopped off, what's to stop their own people from chopping their heads off? Yeah. So it's a very scary, scary time to it's be the, a king. It's or the queen. domino effect. I'm fairly sure that's how it's referred to in communist and uh, Cold War times. But I guess they had the same principle. It's like if this could happen to us. I mean, I suppose Britain and England would be particularly worried about it because it wasn't. 100 or so years previously, 200 years previously, they had their own king and his head chopped off as well. So they'd well, be probably really touchy about this subject. Exactly. Yeah. Only, um, what was it, 100 and, let's have a look, 135 years, something like that, since they chopped off King Charles I's head. So, yeah, Christ, it's, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, if you were, who would it have been in 1795? Oh, George III, George III in England, who had his own problems with uh, mental mm. health and all sorts. So, and yeah, would be very paranoid about republic uprisings, given the the uprising in the New World that has just gone on. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So this is a time of immense change in Europe. And uh, in France, it's being led essentially by the French, who, as soon as they declare themselves a republic, don't want to stop there. They want to spread this republican sort of fervour to other countries and that's why you get this war the first coalition which was basically uh the austrians the bavarians the prussians the spanish and the british all attacking this french republic <laughs> well they really did all gang up on them didn't they i mean it, it certainly wasn't an easy time but to give the french their due they they knew exactly what to well i say they knew exactly what to do they were very successful uh, in this war um, because I've, um, essentially because all of those places I've just named, they didn't um, act in concert, but as separate entities against the French. So there was no mm. sort of cooperation <laughs> between all these people. <laughs> so they'd be attacking at the wrong times of year and and so on and so forth. And so it didn't really work so well, whereas the French did something very clever. They ordered the first mass conscription of all men between the ages of 18 and 25 in wow. the whole country into these new armies and that is a hell of a lot of soldiers especially mm. for the 18th century where you had more professional armies which were a lot smaller so suddenly there's these masses of french armies just popping up all over the place and um mm. they they and they're being led by what what are called new men um one of whom money was kind of napoleon yeah ah. Uh, so he's, so he's, he's he's on the rise because of this. It's kind of that like interesting thing that this new army was being created in a very nationalistic way, rather than it being kind of small feudal lords raising their peasants and all joining the king. It's a national conscription. So it's kind of a almost a clever way of bringing republicanism to the entire country because they all join this one army. They are more one people. That's, that's that's interesting. And so that I guess that is kind of new. I mean, I guess forced conscriptions were always kind of a thing, but it was done through lords. It wasn't just the entire country, any man of this of the right age. So that's even that's yeah. kind of a modern thing. It, yeah, it is fairly modern. I guess uh, 
as always, in times where the nation is being invaded, then everyone rallies around the flag or around sort of the mm. nation. So before the they were invaded, um, and after they chopped off the head of of Louis the Sixteenth, there were lots of different factions, and in fact, it could so easily have imploded with people wanting different things yeah. to to govern. But having this external threat really bound the people together, which I think was very powerful and potent. Wow! So the uh, coalition message. did a terrible job of, yeah. of you know of defeating France because they just created a uh, a unifying enemy that kept the people together. If they just let them left them to it, <laughs> I don't know what would have happened. I literally don't know. Like the French might have wow. just turned into just another civil war. Could have been. But who knows? Mm. That's not what happened in this history, unfortunately. Right. Well, not unfortunately, just a different thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as I mentioned, and as you said about the domino effect, well, the domino effect in this case uh, was to go north. So the French, actually, I say just north, they also went south. They they broke into um, Austrian-held Italy, where they wanted to spread uh, republicanism. And, and then mm-hmm. in the very same time, they were also invading in the very north of the country into Belgium and modern-day Netherlands. So all of a sudden, they'd just been invaded by all these armies. Not only had they pushed those armies out of France, they then pursued them into these other territories to bring republicanism to these other parts of Europe. So, as I was saying, so they, the French wanted to invade, or I say invade, they would have phrased it as sort of bringing revolution to other dominions held by other monarchs in Europe. But mm. So it's quite an interesting... Almost kind of liberating. Exactly, liberating them. They're a liberating force. So, first of all, they went straight north into the Netherlands. Now, the Netherlands um, today, it's easy to think that they were always the same you know like a sort of the nation state had always been you know the netherlands but actually throughout the middle ages the netherlands have been a very fluid state like i mean honestly the first part of it they were they were a part of the duchy of burgundy then they became part of the holy roman empire before being controlled by the habsburgs in spain until it finally fell to the austrians who took control of it in 1714 so the dutch had been sort of not hadn't been independent for most of its existence at this point and so at the time the austrians which were run by an emperor sorry an archduke um were in complete control of the netherlands so what did the french do they literally stormed into into the netherlands and a bit like uh, the blitzkrieg of the of the of germany in 1914 and 1939 like they just stormed straight in and the thing is that they were they took the Austrians completely unaware because the Austrians in in the Netherlands had been there for like 80 years by this point and no one had ever tried mm. to take them and they never really bothered with the French. <laughs> like they never worried about their southern border because the French had always been a monarchy. Mm. So there was no defences really stopping them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so literally straight away, they, they, they lightning invaded and they managed to get all the way to Amsterdam um, in the middle of winter, so this is another thing. Um, back in the 1800s, you did sorry the 18th century, you didn't uh, do much campaigning uh, outside of the summer months because of terrible weather could really destroy roads and spread diseases as well. And so, during the winter time, traditionally everyone sort of stayed at home with the kids and then waited for spring. You know, <laughs> sharpening their blades or you know getting their 
waited for the the warring season. Exactly. You have a season of war. You don't have a yeah. You you then you'll you'll go home and winter in your in your fancy castles. Exactly. But the French aren't playing to the same rules. They're no longer as traditional as they once were. So they attack in the middle of winter. Literally, they they manage to capture Amsterdam, the capital of the Austrian Netherlands, um, on the nineteenth of January, seventeen ninety five. So right in the middle of winter. Wow. Um, and yeah. And honestly, the Austrians didn't really have an answer for it. They, they, there was, I think, one <laughs> battle, and that was it. And then they lost the whole country, or so they. This wow. is just wow. They lost the whole well, country. Th- this is the thing. So first thing happened was they get they they lose Amsterdam, but the Austrians aren't done yet, because they mm. do have other other. They've got their allies, the Prussians. They're not far away. They share a border with the Austrian Netherlands, and in sort of modern day Hanover. So they know that come the spring they can then launch an invasion with the help of their allies back to t- retake the Austrian Netherlands from the French. However, oh no, sorry, one last thing. There's, they have one other ace up their sleeve. The Austrian-Dutch fleet is sitting in the middle of the big bay called the Zwiedersee Bay up in the north of the country, is sitting there, and it's one of the biggest fleets in Europe. And so if they can get that okay. fleet out they can use it as a launch pad to relaunch an invasion to reclaim the Austrian Netherlands. So that's kind of... Okay. There's okay. The, the, you know, okay, it's, it's, if you're thinking like an Austrian, an Austrian chancellor, okay, you've lost, you've lost the, the, the capital of, <laughs> of this colony, but it's okay. There are hmm. still options. You can still turn this around. You're not exactly. out of it. Yeah. They just lost the first couple of rounds. <laughs> okay. I could just imagine, like, an Austrian chancellor or a general just explaining to his higher-ups, going, no, no, it's still okay. I know it looks bad, but we've still got the port. We can still resupply. These French Republicans, they're just, we, we, just, we just want to wait for the summer. We don't want to, you know, we'll retake it all in the summer. It'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, we'll have the Prussians God, on our side. Rough conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Prussians on our side. Um, and also... The other thing to consider is that the French don't have an answer to the Dutch fleet because the French fleet is being blockaded in Brest out on the Atlantic coast by the British. So it's not like, you know, ah. they, they will be powerless against this Dutch uh, mm. fleet. So let's just consolidate. So, so far, you've got the French have taken most of the country except for the north of the Netherlands and they are mm-hmm. preaching republicanism and revolution and off with the heads of the Austrian overlords and the Netherlands is free at last. Um, <laughs> that's so, that's such a weird, that's such a great way to, to phrase it, the Austrian overlords. <laughs> um, and they, um, and the thing is that uh, they actually do establish the Batavian Republic in May of 1795. So they invade in January and by May, spoilers, they set up the Batavian Republic, naming it as a sister of the French Republic. So, you know, they're, they're there right. with good intentions. So, yeah, they're not they're not taking over. No. They're not annexing. They're not they're not controlling. They are in their mind uh, bringing. I mean, I'm really it's it's so easy to make comparisons to uh, modern day wars in the Middle East of like bringing democracy or civilization to these countries that probably don't want it that much and would probably prefer to stay out of these things. But it is that idea that we've had this brilliant revolution. Let's bring these new ideas to these other nations. I mean, I imagine a huge part of it is also strategically thinking we want to reduce the number of monarchies that border with us 
because those are nations that could invade yeah. us. Whereas if we change this nation to something that is our sister, you know, is is loyal to this idea of republicanism, then we keep our borders safe. Exactly. So it's the, you know there's a there's a strategic push, which is also a similar thing of you know modern day movements in the Middle East of just you know taking out governments that aren't friendly to us and hiding it under a veneer of bringing democracy or republicanism or freedom to a country. But it really it is more strategic. Yeah, than that. of course it is. Absolutely. There was, there's never, was it? It's very altruistic of the French. They're not doing this just out of the, the love, the kindness yeah. of their hearts. Um, yeah, but it's a good it's a good PR stunt. It's a good way of framing exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. And it would have shocked Europe as well. This would have been huge. It's like if you're sitting in, you know, Westminster or if you're in Vienna or uh, Berlin, they would have been shocked to hear that the Austrian Netherlands have been taken by this ragtag bunch of revolutionary Frenchman you know it's not this was not the plan Mm, mm. this is not the status quo so now you have some context I am now going to do our next segment which we we're going to do for each of our of these of this mini series which is the life of a soldier where we're going to take one person in the battle and tell the story via them so today's one is going to be the uh, the French hussar captain Julien Moray. And this man was, as I said, a member of the 8th Hussars. Now, the Hussars were sort of the most, how do I describe them? The most flamboyant yet deadly French (laughs) cavalry uh, regiments uh, in the whole army. Like, these guys were just insane in terms of... Flamboyant is not a word I normally would consider... Uh, attaching to a military regiment, really, but I guess it is that time of the or the world stage where flamboyance is a big part of of armies. Exactly, like at this time, the the French fought in blue and the British fought in red, so they weren't really that keen on uh, camouflage. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> also, when you think about it, like um, the aim of like, or the accuracy of gun of guns back then was so were not so reliable, so you didn't need camouflage. Mm. Whereas as as technology caught up, you did want to hide from bullets, whereas it was less of an issue yeah, yeah. back then. If a bullet hit you, it was more luck reg- rather than aim. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, so here we go. Let's go into uh, the life of a soldier. So, we're going to find Moray outside his tent in the middle of the night, around 11pm, in full dress uniform, as he is preparing to move out with the rest of his regiment. Now, I say he was outside his tent. The winter, after taking Amsterdam, the French army was wintering outside of the city, in, just literally on the outskirts of Amsterdam, um, in their own tents and sort of with fortifications. Around. That's a rough winter, isn't it? If you're just in tents. Yeah. Well, and of all the winters, this is one of the coldest winters on record. Really? Wow. So, yeah, lots of people would have probably frozen to death, especially the poorer soldiers. But this man is a captain, Mm. and even in revolutionary France, that meant that you got certain trappings of wealth. Because although, unlike in the communist uh, version of this happening a couple of centuries later, um, this was more of a revolution for meritocracy. So that wealth was still important. It was just you got it if you earned it rather than if you inherited it. 
Anyway, here he is. So, um, our Capitaine Moray was wearing a deep forest green, short fur-edged coat, which was slung over one shoulder like a cape <laughs> and was fastened awesome. with a golden cord. <laughs> wow. Loving yeah. the look so far. Yeah, it's a good start. Uh, the jacket was covered in gold buttons and adorned with silver braiding, which is kind of like that sort of twisted... Kind of filigree, but yeah, yeah. Filigree, yeah, yeah. Um, he wore reinforced breeches, which were crimson red and had leather on the inside of the leg to prevent them from wearing due to riding in the saddle. Yeah, So he's yeah, got yeah. red trousers on, a green fur with gold and silver trappings. Lovely. <laughs> Um, and it, um, they also, his trousers also had a black stripe running down the side, and he wore um, black leather knee-high riding boots, as well as for headgear, he was wearing a fur busby made from a bear skin. So busby are, are the busby. sorts of hats that you see um, outside Buckingham Palace. You know those big black fur ones. The beef eater kind of large. Yeah, like beef hats. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. So you wouldn't miss this guy in a crowd. <laughs> No, He's not I hiding. mean that's. I lo- I'm loving the color choice. I mean, a crimson and a kind of forest red. No, forest. Sorry, forest green. I like that color combination. Is he? Would he be just kind of in a white shirt then? Like so, under no, the, the jacket. jacket. Under the well, at the very bottom, he would be wearing braces um, and a yes, sort of a cotton vest. And right. And then on top of that, he would be wearing this sort of big green jacket over mm. the top, and then his fur over the top of that as a cape. Very, very nice. I like that. That's a really, like, suave... I mean, you know, you would pick him out, and if they had snipers back then, very easy to to pick him out, but I guess that's not the point. He's supposed to look rich and lavish and impressive. Yeah, but the thing is, the other thing is, the whole 8th Hussars were dressed like that. It wasn't just him. So, like, it's not like he'd stand out that much. So all of them would look like that? (laughs) Yeah, maybe without so much gold and silver braiding, but Mm. the actual... The green and red um, color scheme, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so the uniform, the style, and the colors—they would look uniform. It's not like they all have very clashing colors and different styles. And yeah, but that—that that was only for that regiment. Like another regiment might have a light blue and yellow color. It's, it's a weird time for color schemes. <laughs> I love in, it. I think it's—I think it's how soldiers should dress nowadays. I think it's way more fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and in terms of what he was wearing. In terms of his uh, his weapons, he had a brass-hilted sabre and um, mm-hmm. a brace of pistols, so two pistols, sort of flintlock pistols. Think sort of Three Musketeers or yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. For, for want of reference. Um, so, as he mounts up, he is approached by an infantry officer. Now, Moray okay. is not pleased to see him because it's a little bit like even in today's... Uh, in today's uh, armed forces a navy man might not get on well with an army man who might not get on well with an RAF man you know what I mean right there, there's always rivalries between the yeah regiments. so um, so this this infantry officer approaches and as Moray swings himself into the saddle he offers his arm down to this infantry officer and lifts him onto the back of his horse and all around him his fellow hussars are doing exactly the same thing for other infantry okay so if you can imagine it a regiment of, so a regiment is, I think, 240 men. Okay. So 240, uh, uh, roughly speaking, I need to check that, but anyway. Um, go look it up on Wikipedia if you're listening <laughs> to this. Um, 
Uh, every one of the hussars has an infantryman on the back of his horse. So 240 men have another 240 men behind them on their horses. So quite a few soldiers that is, yeah. are about to head out. Rough on the horses as well. And remember, the, yeah, well, these are battle horses, mm. so they're huge animals. Ah, okay. Um, so they can probably take it. And I suppose they're um, not, they're not now, heavily armoured at all, the, are they? They've got quite, they've, they're quite lacking no, they're in armour because it's the, the era of guns where armour's useless. So actually probably not too bad to carry them. I suppose it, they might even be lighter than a fully armoured knight from medieval times. So. Yeah. No, absolutely. Very likely. Um, so remember, this is the middle of the night and then the order is given and the entire regiment moves out at speed. So you might be wondering, why are the French heading out <laughs> in the middle of one of the coldest winter nights on record mm. and at w in the middle of the night? Why do it in the middle of the night? Especially in a time when everyone is dressed so flamboyantly that people don't care about being seen. It's yeah. an interesting thought. Yeah, stealth and yeah. tactics like that aren't really a big deal. So middle of the night, it's freezing. I mean, it's winter as well. Some very weird tactics. It is. Well, after several hours of riding almost due north, they can see their destination, the, Z the Zuidaze Bay, which is this huge bay in, um, in, northern, in the north of the Netherlands, mm -hmm. uh, where that Dutch fleet, the Austrian Dutch fleet, oh, of course. anchor. Right, yeah. the the Aesop, that Aesop uh, Austrians fleas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's okay. Okay, so probably the most important asset in the war currently, because it's the only thing that's really keeping Austria in the game. Yeah, absolutely. But there's um, the but it's horses now. going up against them. <laughs> it doesn't, well, it doesn't sound like a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, the time is now about two a.m. and the cold has dropped to a deadly eight degrees below zero. So Ooh. That is minus eight degrees Celsius. Christ, that's really, really bloody cold. Yeah. Um, now, the night is a clear one, and down in the bay are a cluster of masts, some as high as 150 feet above sea level. Mm -hmm. The captain orders his men to dismount and wait for his orders. Then he crawls forward and opens his telescope and peers out, and the ships he can see are lit up in several places. Mm. All of them had lanterns beside the ship bells and the main masts. And on the largest ship, he could see through the back window of the ship that the commander of the fleet, the Admiral, and some of his officers were still awake, enjoying glasses of brandy in his cabin. Wow, that's to quite a telescopic lens. Commander. Is it, yeah, well, very mastering commander. <laughs> so are the, are the <laughs> yeah. ships docked? Or are they kind? Are they still in the water? They're kind of out. They're not. You couldn't board them. Well, no, no, no. So they're right in the middle of the bay. Right. So it's right, not okay. like you could. You know, they're not like uh, as you said. They're not docked. They're, they're not. Like there's not. There's not piers yeah. that you could. You could go along. Okay. No, 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 no. They're they they're like a good. I want to say half a kilometer, five hundred meters into the bay, wow. something like that. Okay. Or okay. At least, okay. Very yeah, much out it'd of be range. Quite a long yeah, swim. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, in minus eight degrees, that water's going to be rough. So I think probably not worth a swim either. Exactly, exactly. So that's the end of the walkthrough, and we've taken, uh, we've gone from Amsterdam in the middle of the night with two hundred and forty horsemen, with two hundred and forty infantrymen on their backs, all the way up to the Zuiderzee mm -hmm. Bay, and looking out at a fleet of Austrian Dutch ships who are safely because you said on. 
because you said on their backs, I'm just imagining them like either piggybacking or on shoulders, which is like <laughs> a really fun way of thinking about them approaching. Like they want to get the balance right on the horses. So they're like, you can't just sit on the horse. You're going to need to get on my back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so to get to the battle itself, if you are the French commander of this force, right, and ahead of you in the dead of night are the 14 largest ships for on this side of the North Sea coast with full crews mm-hmm. and hundreds of cannon. We're talking thousands of Navy men on these ships, right? Mm-hmm. What on earth? So you're outnumbered yeah. even if you're, you know, you would be outnumbered even if they have ships. Like, the, it's it's still a massive swing to, to, to somehow take these guys on. Absolutely. And you haven't bought any artillery at all because the f- surely the first thing you'd think is, okay, I'm just going to sit on the side and fire a load of cannons at those wooden ships and destroy them. Right? That would make perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, if if, if Napoleon's around, you know, it, the cannon is, is a big deal and artillery is a big deal around French uh, Republic era. So you'd think that would be the most obvious choice. Yeah, but unfortunately... But I guess there's difficult to move around. That's the thing. They, 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 they need to be quick because they have to catch the fleet before it could sail out what's to stop them sailing out of uh, out of the bay mm. now just to just to say so they're at anchor in the middle of the Zedersee bay which is the dutch for the southern sea so it's not a small inlet this is a a sea more than it is a bay it covered 5000 square kilometers and 200 kilometers wow. of coastline so this is a massive mm. massive bit of body of water um, but crucially to our mm. story, though, it wasn't actually very deep, only ever reaching about five meters in depth. Now, five meters is still very, very deep, but yeah. uh, it's not sort of like ocean deep. It's not deep ocean. Yeah. yeah OK. Um, so all he's got with him are cavalry and infantry and the infantry are the 15th line line infantry regiment and the cavalry are the 8th Hussars regiment. And that's it. No artillery. No way of getting to these ships. So what... No chance, really. Yeah, the, the French are at a real disadvantage. <laughs> seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the other thing is, like, what are they going to do? Swim out to the ships? Like, how are you going to get to the ships? Maybe build a bridge? I don't know. <laughs> the, it just seems like a terrible idea. the thing. Whatever they do, the Dutch could just see them coming, way anchor... And just get out of there. Mm. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, and to make matters... Or just blast them apart with their cannon. I mean, they've got enough firepower to just absolutely wreck. Because it's also not like if you're sailing or or swimming across an ocean, you don't have any cover. Yeah. So it would be very easy to take them all out. And yeah, that seems... This doesn't seem like a good plan. It, I'm not I'm not sure where this story's going, but this just doesn't seem to be going well. It really doesn't, does it? Um, but to make matters even worse, obviously, if you had a Fre- the French fleet at hand, you could maybe block the bay. That's what I was thinking when I was first reading into mm, this. That's true. But, there's no there, there's an easy escape route yeah. that they have no uh, the French have no possibility of blocking. Because the French fleet are, as I said earlier, they're barricaded in the Atlantic port of Brest in Brittany by the British. So there's no help from the mm-hmm. sea. So unbelievably, the reason why this... So the the French general knew all of this before he set out with his men. So it's not like he's gone, oh, whoops, forgot the cannons. You know, it's not like... (laughs) 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 Guess I'm just going to watch this uh, fleet sail away. So what... Yeah, yeah. it's that that French arrogance just thinking, well, we'll figure it out. (laughs) No, so he was a bit more clever than that. Uh, This was uh, actually, funny enough, his name was General de Winter, which which is quite apt. 
for the fitting uh, the thing. yeah um but he uh he had had reports of the, this great freeze that was meant to be coming which was crossing <sighs> europe at the time as i said it was one of the coldest yeah. um one of the coldest winter nights on record just to put this into into context on this mm. very night when they're traveling towards the Zuidersee sea in england it was reported that uh, chamber pots in Norfolk were freezing over, like in bedrooms, oh. and like uh, mm. the, I think the Thames froze over, as did the near sea off the Kentish coast. So that's how cold this is. It is, on average, the coldest. I think it was the coldest night on record in England, which was on average minus three point one degrees everywhere. Like that's the average wow. for the whole country. That's pretty intense. Yeah. So, and it was just as cold in this bay. What had happened, according to his reports, was that the entire Dutch Austrian fleet, those 14 ships, had become frozen along with the rest of the no Swedish bay. Yeah, had become frozen because oh, it's because it's a because it's a relatively shallow because you can't really freeze an ocean or you can get large chunks of it frozen, I guess, up in the Arctic, but an ocean is too deep. But it's not that deep. Exactly. No way. Yeah. This is. But of course, even. <laughs> oh my god. But think about this. Even so, okay. If you hear, okay, the, the, this is great. There's an opportunity here. We can get up there because they're stuck. Maybe you know we can find a way of getting them. But even so, mm. you wouldn't. You would wonder, like, of the thickness. Like, how thick is this ice? Because they don't know that. Surely, yeah. when they turned up, they saw this uh, sort of, you know, frozen lake and thought, okay, well, that's something. But, like, what do you do next? Mm. You know? Well, what he worked out was, I don't know how, which brave Frenchman did this first, but a, <laughs> he must have existed. One brave Frenchman got on his horse and trotted onto the lake. And would you believe it? Wow. The ice held. So just think how thick. Give that man a medal. Yeah. Jesus, if he just rode out. Because that's, that's death. Straight away, if he falls well, in, there's no the way. Horse. Yeah, certainly for the horse. I mean, the horse would make it worse because then you've got this thrashing massive animal. If you fall in there, you'd more like there's a good chance you get kicked by the horse. Yeah, which might be a nicer way to go out. But wow, yeah. Okay. So it, and it, but it held. So it's that thick. It can hold, and also presumably he also needs to hold a horse and two men. Well, because they're all riding double. No, no, no. That was just to get them north. So they it would right, only have okay. to. Hold one person, but still, that is really very thick ice. But there's still one more problem. Okay, if the ice is thick enough to cross to get to the ships for men and horses, mm -hmm. there is one problem left remaining to the French, which is this you don't want to wake the crew of these ships because mm. if you think about it, if you wake up and you look out, there's no cover on a bay, funnily enough, because there's no terrain. Yeah. Plus, if they can turn the cannons on the bay, Yes. and they shoot the ice, then you're really fucked. <laughs> wow, yeah, they actually only need a couple of good shots, and they don't even need to hit. They just need to hit the ice. Exactly, exactly. Wow, that's 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 really ballsy for them to try what I think they're going to try. Well, this is what they did. So what uh, what they apparently did was uh, they... Because the other thing is that the French, the Dutch had sharpshooters up in the, in the mass, so you could be picked off one by one. Obviously, it would take a long time, but this is a, it mm. could still be a disaster. So what they did was they wrapped both the horse's hooves and the boots of the men with fabric 
literally they like padded they padded their their, their animals they went stealth yeah 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 so in a time god i bet the horses hated that that would be really have you ever seen a dog had to put like those weird snowshoes on and they walk really weirdly yeah yeah, yeah. i bet the horses were probably although maybe I wonder whether that, that maybe it's more a standard procedure, like for really icy conditions. Although I don't know. I guess it, a horse is used yeah. to putting, um, having horseshoes on. They've got yeah, they've got hooves, and if maybe they're so well trained, they they still know what to do. Yeah. But all- but even if they, I suppose even if they don't, they still all they need to do is just move across the ice. So even if they run a bit weirdly, yeah, and that's enough. They can just quiet their feet. I guess that's the thing. The hooves would give it away. Yeah, but it's, I, no one just looking out. But the other thing, and I guess, I guess oh, I suppose middle of the night. Why would you? Why would you look out? You're not expecting. Yeah. yeah. What What are you going to expect? I mean, you know there's not going to be a fleet. Yeah. And you know there's nothing else that can get you. You're at sea. So, and clearly the, the, the commanders and the captains, they don't give a shit. They're just drinking, having a good time in the, in the captain's quarters. Exactly. Wouldn't care at all. No. And to be honest, I bet. And, you know, the the way the captains are acting will like trigger how the crew will act you know if the captains are fine they're drinking probably some of the seamen and the crew they're they're having a drink as well they're probably not paying too much attention yeah, plus it is the middle and of they're the probably night. really not expecting what i think is going to happen yeah. so this is the thing it's the middle of the night so at around 4 a.m this force of mounted hussars and infantrymen rode out across this frozen solid ice bay <sighs> guided by the distant lanterns on the Dutch ships. Because remember, it's the middle of the night, so they can't see anything. Um, mm. And so what the French did was they split up into parties and they managed to sneak right up to the sides of the major ships, uh, which were the no Admiral de Reuter and the Gelderland, and began to climb right up onto the decks of these ships and subdue the guards and managed to, uh, managed to get enough of them on board to completely surprise the Dutch and make them, and they literally, <gasps> almost without a shot fired, they began to surrender en masse because they were so shocked. Um, and there was a, once the Dutch commander, a man called, Her, this uh, this commander captain was called Hermanus Reinches. He capitulated mm. to the French. And then as soon as they saw that the commander had given up, everyone else downed their arms. And then that was it. Wow. I think that is a, perfectly reasonable thing for that Dutch commander to do. I mean, if you've been taken unawares on a ship by a cavalry charge, you've you've lost. Like, there's no point fighting. You've been outplayed. Checkmate. It's over. Yeah. You know, screw it. Like, there's no... It's. I think it's totally reasonable. I mean, although maybe you'd, you'd be laughed at your entire life for the first naval sea captain to be defeated by a cavalry charge which no, no. physically shouldn't be possible charge makes it sound even like more manly this was a cavalry tiptoe <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is a cavalry tiptoe a cavalry sneak attack i mean how often are there, are there cavalry sneak attacks i mean i mean it's usually rare. i guess maybe just out of nowhere i mean you'd at least hear them coming when it's maybe too late but to not hear them at all until their knives are at your throat that's a pretty rough deal i mean genius move no and oh that's ridiculous so this is the thing so the aftermath of this battle was that it brought the french invasion campaign to a swift end they captured all 14 warships and 850 cannons that is an enormous amount not one of them was able to be fired in the entire really so they didn't they didn't get a shot off at all or maybe a pistol shot once they were aboard but the cannons none of the cannons shot not the cannons 
And, uh, so do we know? Do we know any deaths on either side? Did the French lose any men in the in the initial taking? Apparently over? not. Um, wow. I, I, it's not clear whether many, maybe fi- roughly fifteen men might have been killed. Is what is one estimate um, in the taking of these ships? Because of course you have the night guards, so the night the officers on watch. They might have been killed to get on board quietly. Must, some, someone has probably someone would have been killed, but to, Just to, to go, completely decimate a foe, and I mean decimate's the wrong word because you only, although actually decimate probably is a good word because of, it actually means only killing a few people. But that's kind of what they did. They just killed a couple people and took over an entire army. Yeah. And do you know that's really amazing? So it, it took two regiments of French. So I think about two hundred and forty men captured right these these mm. warships on board. Roughly, there were 6,000 sailors. Holy fuck, that's amazing. What a... Oh, man. That's such a victory. I mean, also the ships as well. I mean, that's a a huge boon. It really is. I assume they keep the ships as well. They do keep the ships. And in the end, I'm pretty sure they, they give them back to the Dutch Republic but make them pay them for them. So I'll get to that. Oh, Um, that's amazing. Oh, my God. Just imagine being one of those French soldiers riding across the thing. I mean, that general, was it De Winter? That was his name. De Winter, yeah, yeah. De Winter, yeah. He must have had really good uh, control over his men because that seems like it could be a suicide mission. Like, if this goes wrong, they all die... No, they don't do anything. They die in a really kind of horrific way of just falling into a freezing ocean. I mean, that is proper faith in your commander. If he got his men to ride across the ocean to attack yeah. ships. I, I imagine mean, that he he told them not to load their muskets, I reckon. Because imagine if someone stumbled and then set yeah, off. Their, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, because there's, the that, that, there's that thing in the, the American Revolutionary War. Isn't it? They 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 take yeah. the bullets out of their Hamilton. gun to, to sneak out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I know it maybe because of the musical, but they take the bullets out of their gun to to not make a sound so they can sneak up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, the um, lengths they went just wrapping things around there. Who's? I mean, I'm still amazed that it's that worked because also because it's a very flat surface, so you'd think any sound would carry. But I suppose even if you did hear a weird pattering. If you're on guard on one of those ships, you might you. I mean, you wouldn't think it's horses attacking you, because who the hell would think exactly. horses can attack you? It's winter. No one attacks in winter ever. This is no one such attacks an in winter. Unusual. No one attacks yeah. ships via horse. And your captain is having a party in his cabin. So why would you be bothering with anything? And also, it's freezing. So you're probably huddled by fires, not looking out. Because I imagine because. Uh, it must have also been a moonless night because you'd probably be able to see quite far because it is such a flat landscape. So presumably a kind of moonless night, people huddled around fires so they kind of get, you know, blinded by the fire so they don't really look out, not paying that much attention because why would you pay attention? It's kind of all these things add up because if any of that wasn't true, this could have ended horribly. Oh, but presumably all of this stuff had to happen for them to even make this move because it's a really ballsy move without everything going in your favour. Precisely, yeah. And the thing is about this as well is that uh, it was such a masterstroke militarily because it, it literally knocked the Austrian administration completely out of the Netherlands and it would remain that way pretty much forever because without the fleet, it meant that the Prussians didn't want to get involved. Like I said earlier about the War of the First Coalition, mm. 
there were individual attacks from these different nations. So why would you help the Austrians out? The Prussians have their own borders to worry about. So mm. that's the thing. So they didn't have a uh, an effective response because it wasn't really an allied force it wasn't uh, they weren't united and working together they just kind of all agreed yeah let's kind of try and stop this but i guess none of them want to especially given how devastating this this takeover has been none of them are yeah. really willing to take on the french at this point because of how that's almost i mean it almost elevates them to a mythical level to say that yeah. you know republicanism's so great we were able to take over uh, a, a a monarchist ship with a cavalry charge. I mean, you could just, I mean, that tale would spread throughout France and throughout Europe and just seem like the most fantastical, amazing event of a generation. I mean, that's truly phenomenal and almost like ordained by God. I mean, I can, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the PR team well, no, in France. The, <laughs> no, 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 that, that's the funny thing. I thought you might say that. The French Revolution was pretty anti the church. Oh, okay. So ordained by the people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ordained by the people. Um, yeah. And the thing is, so at the end of the War of the First Coalition, so it, it was the War of the First Coalition also involved in was the Italian campaign. Do you remember I said the mm. French were also attacking it? The, the thing about Italy at this time, especially the north of Italy, is it's also owned by Austria. So Austria get attacked <laughs> in their northern Italian lands and in their Netherlands, and they lose both at the end of the war. So wow. they sign the Treaty of the Campo Formio, which relinquished the Netherlands and Northern Italy to France and recognised the new republics in those places. So it wow. lost the Netherlands their place forever. In the uh, Sorry, it lost Austrians' place in the Netherlands forever, um, which is quite something. Now, those ships, as I said earlier, they were immediately handed over to the new republic, mm. but they had to pay an indemnity of 100 million guilders to France. Wow. A shit ton of money. So there's the sting in the tail. It wasn't oh, that's just egalitarian. That, that, that must have felt so good. Do you reckon they kept the cannon as well? They took all those off and just gave back the ships. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure. You'd give them um, back. Because you would, I suppose you would want to. You wouldn't want to give back ships that are armed and ready to attack you immediately. You'd want to just give them as these kind of. Oh, no, 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 no. I imagine on. they did give them with the cannons because the thing is, these guys are sister republics. So suddenly they're being run by men who are of the same persuasion as you. Oh, I see. So actually, yeah, no, they they now, it's. Yeah, it's you, they're not giving it to their enemies anymore. They're giving it oh, to no, no. what is their now allies. their allies. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So that first war was, it was huge. For France, and I'm glad to have uh, brought this battle to you, your guys' attention. Well, I hope you enjoyed the is, telling of it. That is just phenomenal. I mean, that's going to be hard to top because that is the most remarkable battle, and so weird. I've never heard of it, and I don't think many people have heard of it because it is mythical how spectacular that battle is. I mean, you know, you hear about like battles where there's clever maneuvers or pincer things or all sorts of stuff, but I can't imagine there is a many more complete successful battles because it's not even like nah, nah. one side was ready to lose the austrians their fleet were ready to fight on they were fully armed fully ready to take on any force they just got cocky and didn't think rightfully so that cavalry could defeat them because who the hell thinks that exactly. oh man that is amazing yeah. and also what's amazing is this battle given how de decisive this battle is it must be a huge battle in almost human history, because if the French Republic hadn't succeeded, we'd probably, well, I don't know, but monarchies in Europe would have held on probably much longer. I mean, France is such a beacon of republicanism. 
probably to the rest of Europe. You know, the fact that it succeeded so well makes it easier for other countries to see, well, you know, maybe it, we it, don't really need true. these kings. It is very true. Unfortunately, though, just to give you sort of the uh, schooling on history, yeah. what happens next, is first of all, the, Napoleon becomes yeah, a despot. Yeah. Becomes an emperor. An emperor. <laughs> and then his uh, his nephew becomes Napoleon II, and then his mm. son becomes Napoleon III, and you still have... The monarchy even comes back a few times in the next century. So yeah, I guess you know, that's right. politics is a mess for a mm. long time yet. But you're right. The uh, these early republicans certainly had that sort of spirit uh, to it continue might, you know, that. Stories like this just might, even if monarchies are still able to maintain control, the um, uh, like, like the the infallibility. The infallibility. Oh, See, there yeah. we go, jinx. Um, yeah, the infallibility of of a king or of a monarch has been ruined because if a republic can succeed so well in the face of, I imagine the Austrian. So what? What they 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 would have had a emperor or king? Yeah, no, no, it was a, an archduke, but yeah, an art, yeah, an yeah, yeah. So if that if if someone like that can be so easily bested by what I imagine lots of monarchies would have just seen this as kind of a rabble that's taken a mob that's taken over France and yet is able to succeed so successfully militarily and then get all this money and then support themselves unfortunately end up supporting a guy who eventually basically becomes a monarch and becomes an emperor but you know the ethos is there the the infallibility is broken you know, a, a god has bled, and so he's no longer yeah, a god. Yeah, literally, they chopped off the head of their of, of the monarch, who was God's anointed. Anyway, listen, Patrick, what is coming up next week? So next week, we'll be jumping forward in time and looking at a really remarkable story from World War Two, which is interesting because I don't think we've covered World War Two at all. I mean, it is such obviously a well-known bit of history. Any school child from Britain, I think, learns about World War Two. I imagine most people around the world or especially Europe and uh, North America will learn about World War II. So it's 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 well trodden territory but this is a story I think I hadn't heard of I think few people had heard of um and it's a very remarkable battle that takes place right at the tail end of World War II and I think it's it, I mean you know it's hard to top a cavalry charge across uh, a sea but I think this one is is interesting in a different way. So I look forward to seeing what it will be like in, in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who can top that? Maybe we should rearrange these and put this one at the end because I can't really think of a way of topping that. I mean, unless I've got horses riding and attacking planes. I mean, that's the next step up, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week.